So I went to a wedding last week. My sister-in-law got married. Mm-hmm. And um, it was awesome. She came down the aisle to the Imperial March. <laughs> uh, no way. Yeah, she did. That was awesome. And then um, they had uh, they had one of their friends do a real non-traditional ceremony, and um, including quotes from the Princess Bride, like, um, you know, love, true love. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. Yep, great wedding. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com ruby. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 73 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have James Edward Gray. Who can't find the mute button. Hi, everybody. We also have Josh Susser. Uh, James, I believe it's right next to the missile launch button on your console. Oh, oh. I need a new keyboard if you have missile launch buttons on it. Avdi Grimm. Hi, I'm Avdi, head chef at rubytapas.com. David Brady. This podcast requires version 12.2 or higher of David Brady and will remain future compatible through version 14. And I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Um, this week we're going to be talking about uh, APIs, and it's it's probably going to be a little bit different from what you're imagining. But before we do that, we want to do the best of parlay, and James is going to take us away with that. Yes, I'm being punished for missing recording a week, so... Uh, actually, uh, on Best of Parlay, uh, I did a thread a little bit a while back. It wasn't this week, uh, but it was, I'm preparing this new, uh, talk for, uh, Aloha Ruby Conf in Hawaii. And, um, I asked for some input on the list and there was a great discussion on that. But that's not my pick because it actually spawned this other talk that did start this week on uh, everybody asking, I was asking for uh, kind of uh, stupid Ruby tricks, and uh, now uh, people are asking for stupid Git tricks. And there's only been like three messages in this thread so far, and I've learned like 65 things about Git that I didn't know before. So a really awesome thread on Parlay for just picking up a lot of cool tricks with Git and version control. Awesome. Um, So, so, So James, somebody forked your thread. Yep, guess so. <laughs> oh man, guys, don't that was me. that was the sound of four mute buttons uh, <laughs> being frantically searched for. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I, well, I, I, I forked a thread, and that's how we got the fantasy thread that you brought up a couple weeks ago. Oh, right, that's, that's right. That was great. But yeah, but I didn't hijack the thread. I just created a new thread that was the old thread. So instead of an email list, it's now an email tree. <laughs> Ooh. All email lists should actually be trees. I, I actually need to check out that th- that uh, email thread, James. I saw it in my mailbox this morning, but um, I've been too busy roguing. You need you need to read the, the Git one. It's like I'm serious. Three messages. I learned like ten million things about Git. It's awesome. Oh, that's the help me with my Git thread. Okay, yep. cool, sweet. So, oh, and and then we have uh, uh, Chuck. Are we also going to talk about the Ruby newbie stuff? 
Yes, absolutely. We should have the page up uh, within the next day or so. I'm I'm sorry, I've just been overwhelmed and haven't gotten to it. Um, okay, but the but but the crucial thing is we've picked an end date yes. for the competition. Yeah, it's it's Halloween, from what I understand. Yes, yeah. Halloween. Uh, Halloween. So yeah. so yeah, so you have the month of October to to do your video submissions. I guess we should offer extra credit for someone who does it in a Halloween costume. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Four points. Yeah. Especially if the Halloween costume is Ruby related. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's very good. And if you make it on the show, then we really want you to come on the show and uh, <laughs> do it while drinking blood from a virgin's neck. Oh man, I was just hoping for somebody dressed up like a like a recursive function. But <laughs> <laughs> wait, how do you dress like that? <laughs> Oh, don't make and, me go there. And Mountain Lion OSX shall lie down with the Lambda. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so APIs. I've heard of those things. Yeah, they, why don't we give a definition since somebody had to give me one before we came on the show. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do the definition. Thanks for the setup, James. Uh, so an API is uh, an application programming interface often contrasted with an SPI, which is a system programming interface. APIs are the public interface of a piece of software to clients who are going to make use of that software. Those SPI system programming interfaces are usually like private ways of accessing things that aren't for general public consumption. So we're not talking about those today. APIs. Oh, we probably are. No, we're not. <laughs> it's private. <laughs> Nobody can get to it. Oh, ouch. But in Ruby, you can always get around private. I actually wrote a gem called Exposed Privates. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, but we can't discuss it on the episode or we'll lose our family-friendly rating. <laughs> nice. Actually, it wasn't yeah. a gem. It was an R plug-in. But yeah, anyway. So we're not talking about the web APIs this time. We're talking about real programming APIs. Yeah. Well, I think the, the web ends up being a subset of that or a Something, but yeah, it's, it has it has largely different best practices and stuff. Yes. Well, that, that's because the mechanisms for reaching a web API are different from a programmatic API, where in a lot of cases it's just a library that you call or a class that you reference. That's right. And uh, yeah, it it it's deceptively easy to screw those APIs up. So give us an example of a screwed up API, Chuck. Well, in the pre-show, I think we all kind of you know brought this one up, and then we're like, yeah, oh, man, it's it's net HTTP. Yes, um, amen. Yeah, it's, it's just not pretty. <laughs> so yeah, let's yeah, talk about why. Yeah, well, we could do an entire episode with you know where we invite Eric Huddle on and have him talk about how bad net HTTP is. Oh wait, no, he's the one. No, he's the one who talks about how good it is. Wait. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that worked out well, but, but I like Andy's point. Let's talk about why it's bad because it really is bad. Okay, so so do we all have the Ruby Doc site up in our browsers? So I, well, I don't even need the Ruby Doc site. I, I can <laughs> tell you why it's bad. Actually, if you want to know why it's bad, this is absolutely hilarious. There's a um, peep code play-by-play videos, you know, where they do them with the experts. Right. And um, Yehuda's got one of them. And at one point, he's doing something in Ruby, and he he goes into net HTTP. And he's all, yeah, it's something like this. And he, he literally fiddles with it for like 10 minutes and cannot figure out the right interface to make the call that he wants, right? And that's exactly why it's bad. If it's that every single way that you use net HTTP 
it's a different interface with slightly different semantics. Like, is it going to be encoding these form variables for me, or am I supposed to be doing that? You know, and none of that's ever clear, and the interface is always different. So every time you guess, you're wrong, no matter what. Yeah, it's uh, it's really out to get you. Yeah. Well, one other thing that that makes me crazy about it is, I mean, you have some some of the method names and class names are pretty self-explanatory, like dot get. You know, it's making a get request, and so you can kind of you kind of get an idea that that's what it's doing. But a lot of these other ones, I mean, I can never remember which which method to call. And if you're doing something different from just the standard dot get, then you have to create a different object to do something else, which is kind of what James was saying. But I mean, ultimately, half of these functions are things that you would never guess the name of to do what you want it to do. And for me, a good API is something that I can you know, I can get into and I can almost guess what the name is because the, it's named after what it does. Mm-hmm. Right. So so it's like to give Chuck's example, it's .get if you just want to get a URL. But if you want to post some data somewhere, it's .post underscore form, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, so consistency is an important quality of a good API and and net HTTP is not consistent. No, it's, it's nothing if not inconsistent. <laughs> the the uh, it one of the one of the problems I've I've had using it. I haven't used it in a couple of years, but I, I remember I was trying to do some like header manipulation or you know like set some special header on a on a response or on a request and and I I it's like the features that you use to set something up don't. Apply, they only apply in the most specific case, and then if you want to do something that steps outside of that covered case, it's like the API gives up, and you have to do terrible things to be able to use it at all. Is is that sound familiar? Yes. Like yeah. you, sit, you know, I want to make this request. Now I want to make this request using basic auth. Oh, okay. The way you made it before totally doesn't apply anymore. Now you have to grab all these special objects, construct them, set your basic odd thing, and do the request manually, basically. Like, yeah. Okay, that's weird. Right. So in addition to consistent, we kind of like composable. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So my favorite, um, my favorite problem with the native HTTP API is its exception API, um, and this is something that that I think not enough not enough API designers think about is that exceptions are very much part of your API. And, and more broadly, error, error reporting is part of your API. And the, uh, the net HTTP library can raise, I think, so it, it can raise many, many, many different exceptions, a number of which it defines itself. But the biggest problem is that it can raise at least three distinct families of exception, meaning exceptions that don't really have a, a, a common, um, base class a, apart from exception. And so what I've seen, I've seen a lot of, uh, projects, you know, where, you know, the, the code started out handling one kind of exception and then the application crashed. And then they, you know, realized that, oh, we need, also need to, to, uh, handle an IO error. And then the application crashed. And then, you know, they realized, oh, we also need to handle a, um, you know, a, a system, system error or whatever it's called. Or a thread, um, yeah. Uh, you know, the, well, the, there, there's an error, you know, the, the error that's the, the root of all the, um, the, like the, the interrupts and stuff like that. Error no, I think it's error no. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, that's 
that's one of the frustrations that that I've had with it is you have to you have to rescue like at least three distinct families of, of exception if you want to avoid the blanket you know rescue everything exception which is generally good to avoid. I think I have the complete list of exceptions here that you have to rescue because I run into that problem all the time and have to do it. And you're right, it's three different families. There's the timeout error that it can throw. Then there's a couple of them in Erno, like Ian and E Con Reset. Um, uh, no, sorry, it's four. There's also EOF error it can throw and defile error. And then there's several exceptions that belong yeah. to NetHTTP, like NetHTTP bad responses. And this this bleeds over into some of the attempts to uh, build a nicer API on top of H- NetHTTP, because at least the last time I used it, I seem to recall that REST client um, could raise the, the same set of exceptions. That may have changed since, since the last time I used it. but um, that's, a, that's a good question. I don't know. That's a good question. <clears throat> okay. okay. Do, we, do we have any ter- other terrible things to say about NetHTTP? Um well, just to hit the exception thing one more time, if you want to fix that problem well, um, Opti shows you how to do that in his book. It's very good. <clears throat> yes. You can still raise the same exceptions and let everybody rescue them with one call. Everybody wins. That's right. The the, the thing that I, I, I'm, I'm noticing, I'm looking over the API uh, listening again, and that it's um, just the way that you, you pass in parameters varies so wildly, it... It's sort of infuriating. <laughs> it, yeah, there's, all, there's all these cases where you just create a URI using the URI library. And and there's some cases where you can just pass in the URI as an object to make a request, and others where you have to pass in distinct pieces of it in parallel. Yes. Like, here's here's the host and here's the port or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's this is almost exactly the Yehuda video I'm talking about. Yeah. You should watch because he, he's literally playing with it for like 10 minutes and I think he actually gives up and switches to a different library. Because <laughs> we've all been there. Yeah. And like, so a good, a good contrast to that would be, uh, the Rails, uh, any, any of the Rails routing, uh, or, or I should say any of the Rails methods that takes a route, you know, like redirect to or some, or, or link to, um, you know, that there are like three or more different ways you can pass a route in and they all work in all contexts you know you can have your you can have your hash of options or you can you know you can use a uh, a URL helper uh you can use a string you know and they in any context they all work and the reason they all work is they all pass through the exact same method right which is URL4 which is rails right. general mm-hmm. so yeah yeah that's exactly right that's a great point so um, what what I want to ask is, um, do any of you preemptively give up on net HTTP and use something else that wraps the API? Yep. 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 And I, and what's I your use. weapon of choice? So Abdi and I had a fight over this uh, before the show, and he punched me in the nose, and I have a nosebleed, so he wins. <laughs> <laughs> that is that's gonna look that good on my on my record. <laughs> So what do you use, Abdi? Okay, so um, lately I have been using Faraday every time that I want to do something with HTTP. Faraday is a wrapper around other HTTP libraries. Um, so it wraps net HTTP, but it also wraps some of the things that, that are alternatives to net HTTP, like Typhoeus and uh, Patron and some others. 
and it gives you a, a kind of a common API to them, so you can swap out your back end. And it has some nice features like like having a, a fairly sane exception API and a nice uh, sort of callback oriented API for handling the uh, the responses. It, it, you can you can use you can use a um, like a, a regular return API, but you can also use a, a callback API. So you mentioned Typhoeus. That's a, that's what, another one that I've used. Um, and I, I generally like the both the interface and, and it gives you some nice features like being able to do concurrent or yeah concurrent uh, calls calls out to uh, other endpoints out on the web. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and the thing that Typhoeus demonstrates, I use it as an example of good APIs a lot. Um, it, it demonstrates a couple of things. Number one, it demonstrates the fact that that you can build a synchronous API on top of an asynchronous callback a- API, but you cannot. Build. You can't start with an a, with a synchronous API and then build a, an asynchronous one on top. And so the Typhoeus has very sensibly started with an asynchronous API where you can basically pass an on complete or an on error handler into the uh, into any of your requests. But then on top of that, it layers you know as sugar, it layers a very simple um, you know synchronous you know when, when the when the method returns the request is ready kind of api that you might expect from from a, a simpler library like rest client or something and so you kind of you can have your cake and eat it too you can you can as you need to you can go from a very very simple you know call get and get a, requ- a response back to having a more of a a reversal you know don't call me i'll call you kind of kind of flow um, the other thing i like about it is that it actually has a no raise api which means it doesn't raise exceptions period Instead, it provides all the information you need to, you need to know if if the if the request was successful or not, and you can you know you can query the res- response object to find out you know if the request even went out or if it you know hit a DNS problem or if it made contact but it got a you know it got a, a 500 error on the other end or whatever, and you can decide whether you want to raise an exception based on that. And you can put that in your your on error handler if you want, or you can or whatever, or uh, you can just interrogate the response. But uh, it leaves that decision of do, is this worth an exception up to you? And considering that you know the alternative NetHTTP actually has an exception for 404, which is not an error in many you know in many use cases. I, I prefer the opposite extreme of let the user decide what what's exception worthy. Yeah. So James is back. James, what were you trying to say before you uh, disappeared? Sorry, I lost my internet connection. Um, I was saying that, and maybe you guys covered this while I was gone, but Faraday has middlewares in it. So you can, you know, you can swap out backends like Avdi said, but also you can insert middlewares between, you know, basically where you make the call and that backend gets a hold of it. So if you want to do something like, um, if you want to do something like, um, you know, uh, parse JSON in the response, you can just put a middleware that any time a response comes in, it parses it as JSON. Or adding caching yeah. is another good example. Right, exactly. Yeah, but another one that I really like is HTT Party. Um, and, and for me, the big wins are just that it does have that consistent interface. And the other thing is is that I don't have to sit there and decide whether or not I want to call uh, net HTTP get or create a net HTTP get dot new whatever object you know, it's it's all consistent, and you can actually mix it into a class if you have your own class, and it makes sense, you know, to add that API to the class. So that, that's what kind of bugs me about HTTP Party. Actually, is uh, the way I see everybody use it is is the mix-in version, and it's like it 
it, I don't think it makes sense in a lot of cases. I, I it does. It does have an interface that's not that way. I just don't see people use it like that. Uh, my favorite, personal favorite uh, in the past has been REST client, uh, which I think has a beautiful API. It, it probably does have the exception problem of you mentioned. I can't remember uh, if that was ever fixed or not, but I love the API for it. It's very consistent and just wraps NetHttp behind a really sane API. Right. I want to, there were a couple things Avdi said, uh, James, I think you were off the call at the time, but he was talking about um, Tefeus and what worked and what didn't work. And so I want to, I want to just revisit one of those things for highlighting um, or a couple of those things. So, so what, one of it, uh, Avdi, you were talking about the asynchrony versus synchrony in the calls and said that the, the base Tefeus model is asynchronous because you can create a synchronous abstraction layer on top of that, but not the other way around. So is that something that we want to talk about in terms of when you're creating an API, do you want to build it for composability or not? And that's, a that's I guess, a design decision when you're making the API. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, actually. Like, um, I, I was struck by that in um, uh, when we read Goos uh, and discussed that recently, what and maybe it's just the example they chose, the primary example, where they're dealing with, like, um, you know, messaging servers and stuff like that. But um, I was struck with how much they use callbacks everywhere, right? Uh, here, let me just hand you this and call me when you're done kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's almost like object-oriented programming at its best, right? In that, in that you're not actually procedurally running through things. It's very tell-don't-ask, and it, 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 it tends to lend itself... Like if you're having trouble with the whole like Marcus testing um, philosophy, I think it it clarifies some of that because you spend less time with methods that that where you're worried about both what they do and what they return. Right. It becomes it becomes more about what you know if you have imperative methods that do something. Period. You know, and one of the things they do might be to call you back, but you know you're not you're not testing both both the outcome and and the result value. It really forces you to decouple your code more, though, too, right? Because you can't count on the order, right? You can't, if you queue up two callbacks, you can't say you know you're going to get this one back first. So you purposefully write your code so that they don't rely on each other to happen first. Well, and it's important to differentiate between just a a callback-oriented API and an explicitly asynchronous callback-oriented API. Um, Because, because, you know, you can have a callback API where you specify, you know, you pass in multiple callbacks, here's what to do on success, here's what to do on timeout, here's what to do on error. And, you know, and, and that can, that can still, you know, that can still pause your thread while it's, you know, during the whole call and then, you know, call one or none of those callbacks and then return control to you. Uh, so that's, you know, that's still synchronous, but it's a, it's a callback oriented API. But then the nice thing about that is that, it's a much easier transition from that into the world of asynchrony than it would be if you had built, you know, if you had built uh, with the assumption of I'm going to get a return and then work on that. So a good example of a synchronous callback API is um, uh, RexML or uh, Nokogiri both have a stream parser uh, where you can basically set callbacks, you know, call this when I hit a tag, call this when I hit some text. Uh, whatever, and they'll parse, you know, potentially a very large XML document that maybe you can't afford to keep 
uh, all in memory, and it'll just hit your callbacks on events. But that's synchronous because you'll get the callbacks, you know, the tag will come first, and then the text inside the tag or whatever. So you can just make some stack and manage where you are in the stack. Now, James, does, does uh, faster CSV do something similar? Uh, no, it doesn't. Uh, well, uh, I, okay, well, you can use faster CSV to parse uh, really large documents uh, in that you can just request a line at a time. Uh, but but I don't have, like, a callback parser for it. That's an interesting uh, thought, but I haven't thought about it. Well, lot. you can you can each over the over the records, right? I mean, that's... Yes, you that's can. effectively. Okay. I mean, that's effectively a call. It's it's a very maybe you know the most the most simple form, but it it is effectively a callback parser. Yeah, kind of a kind of a Ruby convention, right? We we should talk a little bit about faster CSV because a lot of people don't like how I designed uh, the API. Um, so we should talk about that. Can, um, can I ask real quick? Are, are you talking about the public API or the way that you built the library as a whole? The public API. Yeah, okay. that's what they don't like. So uh, is it is it mainly the tape people are thinking table oriented and you're thinking file oriented because that's what through me. Um, yes, that is uh, kind of part of it. So that one big thought is like David Brady said that it should um, be kind of tabular and faster CSV does have a helper method called table, which will basically parse the whole thing into one big table and then you treat it like a table. Um, so I, I feel like we do kind of hit that. The reason I didn't go with just that approach is exactly the reason of uh, whenever I'm dealing with CSV, it's usually enormous, and I don't want to suck the entire thing into memory. And I think doing that in a kind of tabular format is a little strange uh, in that, you know, it, it's very difficult not to suck the whole thing into memory. Uh, so the way I designed faster CSV is it's basically like an I.O. object, uh, it's very similar to Ruby's I.O., forwards a lot of those methods except for the ones I need to override. And uh, the difference is that as you're reading a line of CSV, it's CSV's concept of a line, right, which may actually be multiple lines if you have a quoted field with some embedded new lines in it and stuff. Uh, so it, it basically uh, behaves like an I.O. object, uh, and, and really even wraps Ruby's I.O. objects. You can pass an I.O. into it, and it'll wrap that and read CSV as it comes out. So it's kind of like a decorator, really. Uh, and uh, you can you can do it with all kinds of I.O.s, which comes in very handy. Uh, a trick I use a lot is to pass in a uh, something I opened with Zlib. So you can read a gzipped, uh, a, a, a zipped uh, CSV file directly through faster CSV. Because uh, Zlib can read from the zip, and then you just pass that in, and CSV reads from it. But a lot of people don't like that IOE-ness of it, and think that that's a bad design. What is the objection to that? In my case, it was just ignorance. I, I, I came in, and I looked, and I saw each and each line, and I thought, oh, this is enumerable. And so I was manipulating away, and then I wanted to rewind back to the beginning of the the enumeration, and I got the next line in the file. It didn't re- like didn't re- didn't do an I/O rewind, mm. and that threw me. And I was so certain that James had written a bug, so I wrote this huge long bug report and a like unit test to test it. And James just laughed and wrote back to me and said, "This is why you're wrong." <laughs> so, so by hey. some people, you meant David. <laughs> no, it's actually come up a lot. Um, I think the primary objection 
is that they feel like it doesn't do uh, just one thing uh, because it has some IO involvement in it. To be fair, I think uh, CSV is kind of a tricky thing. It's actually a pretty poor data format, in my opinion, because technically uh, you can you can break just about any CSV parser on the planet. All you have to do is start the document with a quote and then throw you know something like ten gigs of data after it, because there's literally no way to know uh, how far it goes or whatever. And so you can pick some kind of cutoff or something where you stop parsing, uh, you know, and, and just give up or whatever. But then that also means you may fail to parse some uh, valid CSV, you know, if they're at the cutoff plus one or something, you know. Uh, it's, it's kind of a tricky data format. And so a lot of people object to the fact that it's tied so closely to IO. I think that they, they feel it's, a, it's not a good separation of concerns. My opinion is that it's difficult to have a good CSV parser without some concept of like the stream it's reading from. But in retrospect, if I, if I did have to design it again, I probably would go to something like a callback API. I think if I had a choice or at least make that an option, mm-hmm. uh, and then, and then give the other API on top of that. So, so James, I have a, I have a question that you, know, you say, you know, if you had to do it over, if you're going to you know, do it, you would do it differently. How much of the the design of the faster CSV API was uh, sort of you know burst like Athena from your brow fully formed, or you know how much uh, was extracted from you built it up over time and it just sort of evolved into that arrangement. Uh, that's a really good question. So the the parser at the core of uh, CSV. Uh, for a long time was pretty much two regular expressions. And it, it's that uh, people were complaining over and over again about the speed of the old CSV library. And I'm like, well, you can actually parse CSV with a regular expression. And I threw one out on the Ruby core mailing list. And people wrote back and, and were like, well, that's pretty close, but it misses all these ugly edge cases. So I took all those ugly edge cases and threw them in tests, and I had to tweak the regex a little and add one more uh, other little regex to handle it, another edge case, and then by then it parsed everything people threw at it. Uh, and we went with that for a long time, and then eventually, I, I'm sorry, I forget the name, but it's in the change log if you uh, want to go look. Uh, somebody came back and rewrote the parser not to be regex-based, uh, which is good because there, there are some scenarios where because of the way it had to parse fields, if you fed it certain kind of data, it could get exponential, and then your parse just took forever. Um, so his his parser is much better about handling scenarios like that, uh, and it was basically rewritten. But the core of faster CSV is actually uh, really small. And then uh, on top of it, it's like you say, over time, you know, we've layered on more helpers, like the table one I mentioned uh, earlier, and several others. I have a I had a completely CSV compatible interface at one time, but ironically, we chose to throw that out uh, when we when we brought it into the standard library. But yeah, a lot of it built up over time. But the core parser is actually quite small and not very complicated. The place I was trying to go with that was, you know, one of the common wisdom pieces in the Rails community is that you ex- when you're going to do a gem or a plugin or something, you want to extract it from an application, so that it has some grounding in reality and 
and there's some experience behind it, so it's not just something that somebody dreamed up and never really tried out. That's a really good point. I have another library called Gatling Gun, which wraps um, SendGrid's newsletter API, and I did that when I was building Subinterest. So I was actually using it at the time, and as I as I was poking around with it, I, I developed the library that I needed to do that. Yeah. Do, do you? I mean, do you see a big difference in how things turn out when you do that? Yes, I design it much better. <laughs> there we go. I, I can point to another uh, library that I, I did the other way around. I designed the library first and then used it in an application the whole time I'm using it. I'm like, wow, this is really stupid and brain dead and painful. Whereas uh, Gatling Gun is, is designed really well, I think, because I was using it uh, on an application. Okay, cool. So I want to talk about a, uh, a design quality that... I, I've perceived as being a good one in building APIs. I'm curious what you, uh, what your take on it is. Uh, and that is the, the quality of layering. So yes. like, yes. like, <laughs> so like, uh, some of the best APIs I've used, they've had, uh, for instance, a top level, a really abstract top level, uh, object, object API where, you know, all the concepts in it are, are represented as nice, Nice objects. Um, you know, let's let's take an, as, a, as an example something that wraps like a C level API. You know, at the top level you have something that, that's all objects and, and very clean um, and some simple top level methods. Uh, and then at the bottom level you have a really really thin wrapper over the C library. So like the methods have the exact same name as the C calls. They have the same val you know the same return values. You know mapped just mapped to ruby if there's if there's some sort of special you know external return like you know you have to 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 map the error error value to a, a table somewhere you have you know that that isn't wrapped it's just you you handle it manually and then sometimes there's one or more sort of glue layers in between there um, the, the, I should have started out with like the flip side of this the flip side of this is when you've got a beautiful high level API and you realize you want to change one thing about what it does like you want to pass an extra header or something and you look at the code and you realize that each of those high level beautiful high level api methods is basically implemented as one great big lump and which which goes down through multiple layers of abstraction to the sort of you know the core interface mm-hmm. and you realize that if you want to change one thing about it you're going to have to basically copy that entire lump uh, and either make your own or, or monkey patch in the the change that you want. Um, you know, and there's no way to like tunnel in the the new values that you want to pass down or anything. And so, so some of the better thought out libraries I've seen have have had this layer this layered architecture where if when you decide that you need to do something a little bit different with it, you can pick a layer lower down um, and and sort of compose something out of the bits at that layer and and with your own stuff in you know. Uh, slid in there. There's another big advantage to that approach. For example, I've seen a case where they were wrapping like a web API and they had the lower layer, uh, like you said, that basically mirrored the calls exactly, right? And the parameters exactly and stuff, which is awesome because then the documentation for the API works for that layer. Right. right? Because that, and that's, that, yeah, that, and that's a great, a great point because you can, because if nothing else, you know, if maybe maybe the folks haven't gotten around to writing the documentation for the higher level stuff, and you're just not sure how to do something, but if nothing else, you can go to that the docs for the for the original API, the C level API, and just use the the Ruby code the same way. 
So one problem that I see here is that um, there's the possibility that um, you're going to be changing the lower level APIs at some point. So it, what kind of a contract, I guess, do you make well, with that's, your users? Right. I guess that's part of my point is that this this is explicitly making the choice. You know, I mean, you know, normally we would in in OO design, you know, we would think about, okay, well, I'm only going to make you a contract at at the at this high level, this highest level of abstraction. You know, you can use this high level API, you know, with with confidence. But anything underneath that is is my my icky secrets. A good right. example of this is uh, Ruby Gems, where they started making parts of their API private and uh, you know changing it, and then there were compatibility issues. Right, and this right, is this is explicitly making the choice to establish like two or three points points of abstraction along the the continuum um, that will actually be stable and publicly exposed, and 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 the the you know the second level builds on the first level, you know the same way. Third-party code would build on the on the on the first level, and the third level builds on the second level the same way third-party code would would use it. So it's it's it is making a, a choice to commit to having multiple levels of of public API instead of just one top-level public API. Would would a, would a good approach to this though be to you know maybe create a lower-level API gem or library, and then have another higher-level? Library or API that consumes the lower level, so that you are basically maintaining those APIs in separate libraries or areas, and then and then you know where the contracts are because it's different at, at each level. Uh, Rails does that with the with the different large scale components. So you have Active Record and Active Support and Action Pack. So so when you get big enough, it's good to do that. But right. Uh, that that's mainly so that people don't have to use all of Rails all at once. Not not not. It's like no one ever releases a version of Active Support without release, releasing a new version of Rails. Right. Like, There's another great advantage to this approach we're discussing right now, especially if I love it when the top layer lets you grab a hold of its handle to the lower layer. Yes. So yeah. you can just like inject something in there. And mm-hmm. I actually used that one time. Uh, it was wrapping a web API. I can't remember which one. But uh, the web API version had changed, and they had added some new feature. But this uh, library hadn't been updated yet. But uh, under the hood, I-, I could just grab a hold of that lower handle. And uh, I think it actually used method missing. Uh, so I was able to actually call a method that didn't exist, and it all just worked because it was a new <laughs> Uh, thing in that and that uh, API, but even if you don't use method missing, as long as you give people a you know a generic means to construct a request or something, then they might even be able to take advantage of a new feature on like day one without you having to update the code. Right? So I have a great example of that, which is very similar to yours, which is that Faraday, you uh, you know at the top level, it, it's you give it just these method calls like get or post. And in the background, it's constructing a request object, which normally you don't have to worry about that request object. But if you do want to worry about it, if you want to, say, add an extra header or something, you can pass a block to that post or get, and the block will yield the the request object that Faraday is in the middle of preparing. It'll yield that to you once it's, you know, done most of the preparation. And then you can call arbitrary methods to, you know, add a header or whatever to that request, and then... You know, and then finish your block. You know, you're done with it, and then Faraday takes takes whatever you know that request with whatever modifications you made to it, and proceeds along. So you you get to deal with that lower level for just as long as you want, and then you're done. Mm-hmm. 
the, the there's a something we're all familiar with. I think who've, who've done Rails programming is that you have these um, hooks in the con- in controllers that get in there before and after actions. So you, you got the before filter and the around filter, those kind of things. And and that's that's a similar kind of thing where you're exposing an interface to get down into a lower level of the of what's going on in the system. Because normally you just like throw a an index method in your controller and you know, that the action runs and you get the view and that gets rendered and you're done. But with the filters, you're now breaking into a lower level of the abstraction and you can insert behavior like that. So right. that's just another example. What I love about the Ruby concept of programming is that like coming from C++ and Java, you're always fighting the leaky abstraction problem which is where you tried to build these top-level objects, but it turns out that the, the middle layer's got to keep a handle to some resource that will leak memory if you don't free it. And so it ends up leaking up. Well, and NetHttp is an example of something that leaks, right? It's the, the exceptions leak out w- weirdly. And we're actually approaching this from the other direction, which is we like APIs that, you know, find the spot on the wall where it's leaking, drill a hole and install a faucet because that's where we need to reach in and, and actually like leak in reverse. We need to like drill down in and get into those. I think that's very cool. And, so, so, and just to be totally fair to uh, people like Eric Hodel that do work on NetHttp, uh, though he didn't design it, I don't think. I, I believe NetHttp was going for that layered abstraction. Uh, there are those, you know, those objects and you can construct a, a request manually and stuff. The problem is at each layer, the consistency is so bad that I can't tell where one layer ends and the other begins. Right, right, right. right. So, so we, we've talked about this on a couple shows about uh, consistency of abstraction level. Uh, I think, you know, we were talking about that with uh, Katrina Owen when she was on recently. And, you know, when Kent Beck was on, we talked about how you want all of the operations that happen within a single method should happen at the same level of abstraction. So you shouldn't have, you know, Q push A, Q push B, Q push C, and then, uh, you know, Q, you know, Q rearrange all your contents. So that you, you want to keep things happening at the same level. And Katrina even looked at, uh, you know, what's the shape of your method? Does everything look uniform? We can find problems with our methods if we just see that. So, so APIs, a good quality is that they they give you they can give you this layered access so that you can have your client code using the API actually operate at a, at a consistent level of abstraction. And then if and then if there is something that you need to do that is at a lower level, you can put that in some other method and have that operate at the different level of the API. And I think I'm I'm actually a little backwards. I think a lot of people start with the uh, the top level calls and, and we talk about that a lot. Like again, with our goose episode, they, they tell you, uh, why you design that way. And, and so you only build what needs built. But for me, it's actually easier, especially when I'm doing an API to, to work at the bottom up. And I, I'll do exactly like Avdi said, mirror the bottom layer exactly as I want, which is almost never the Ruby interface I want, right? Cause Ruby, I want pretty objects and blocks and stuff like that. And, Things like a C API or, or a web API, they're not going to have those as much like we use them. And, uh, and so I'll build that lower level layer and then I'll build the objects the way I want on top of that, you know. So I think it's important to remember that the 
the interface you end up exposing, you know, doesn't have to be exactly what you're using under the hood, or maybe you can even expose multiple levels of it. Again, like Avdi said, you can expose that here's my direct copy and here's the pretty stuff I built on top of it. A good example of a bad example of that is Ruby TK. They just copied the C library and the documentation says, eh, go look up the C reference. And that's it. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. Okay. The, so, so one, one thing that we can cover just by referring to another episode is versioning. So, uh, uh, yes. Go, yeah, so, yeah. so go listen to episode 37, versioning and releases. So, so since we're talking about layers, <laughs> um, you you can go uh, even a step further, right? You've got your low layer, which actually mirrors exactly as it is. Then we in Ruby, we tend to have a pretty object layer on top of that, uh, hopefully well-designed. And then the top layer above that would be like a DSL, right? Something like RSpecs, uh, you know, DSL for uh, describing various test cases and, and using the should syntax to set up uh, actual assertions. So... What so do we do you, think about that? Is that you, still an API? Yeah. Well, okay. So, so, so the, okay, say what you're going to say because I have a good rant on this, so, but I'll let you go first. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so my thinking is, is it, some of the DSLs really feel like DSLs. They don't really feel like programming. Um, the RSpec DSL to me feels a lot more like programming because it, it still feels like I'm defining a block and, you know, doing method calls and things like that, you know, very programmatic things. And so, yeah. I think I think it's if if you're if you're calling it a DSL and it's on a continuum between like pure DSL and pure API, it's it's further down toward API. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the others a little bit more are a little bit more uh, DSL-ish, and and I'm trying to think of some you know maybe Hamel or something, but that's not really a good example either. I I don't know cucumber cucumber yeah cucumber is much more yeah much more right, along right. that. So- so, so, so one of the canonical examples of a domain-specific language is SQL, you know, structured query language, and right. that's a that's a domain-specific language. It's meant for doing relational, you know, queries. Mm-hmm. That and you know you can't do generic Turing complete computation in it. It so you know, and people talk about Rails as being a DSL for building web applications, and I think that's pushing it. The, you know, Rails is an API for doing that. Yeah, it's a set and, of APIs that make things yeah. easier. And and I back in 2008 or so, I saw a bunch of people doing talks at, at various places talking about how to do DSLs in Ruby, and basically they were just talking about a poorly done API. It's like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you just if you know, if you just have a you know a call to a library and you you know do it all with um, instance evaling blocks so that self is implicit, then oh hey it's a DSL. It's like no, it's not. It's just an API that doesn't work well. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a big fan of thinking about APIs as some sort of uh, linguistic construction. Yes, I, I, I think that uh, yeah, I. I I learned this like way back when one of my mentors in, in OOP said, create, you know, defining the API to a class is a linguistic process. You're, you're creating some, and he meant DSL, but this predated that term. So he was talking about you're building a DSL for interacting with some piece of your application. And so the, I think it's great to think about API construction in terms of, oh, if I, you know, if I were thinking about this like a DSL, if there were some language for for describing all these things, that's great. But the mostly what I see in DSLs in Ruby is that they 
remove a significant portion of the feature set of the Ruby language and offer nothing as an advantage. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a good point, but let's let's go back to the RSpec DSL because I don't okay. feel like it does that. The RSpec DSL, mm-hmm. uh, I would argue, uh, does a pretty good job there because if you're going to use something like, say, uh, test unit or straight up mini test, not mini spec, then, you know, first of all, you have the underscore problem where, like, if you're typing a long test name, you're going to wear out your underscore key just to find sure. your method name. Sure. And RSpec gets rid of that. The other thing uh, that's nice about our specs uh, syntax, in my opinion, that describe blocks and stuff are actual classes and stuff. And you can just go ahead and define methods in there if you need to or mix in some module or whatever. Right. So, so I, I think that a lot of that stuff exists in the continuum between DSL and API. And I, I usually think of that as, as uh, syntactic sugar in some way. It's interesting that RSpec is on the continuum far enough up that people actually complain that it's too comprehensive, <laughs> that it's it's littering object, the you know the root object with too many yeah. stuff, too many yeah. methods. Well, 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 well let's let, let's get David on the show and we'll have this conversation with him. Yeah, we, yeah. we probably need to have that conversation <laughs> at some point. But to be yeah. fair, I I really like things like the describe blocks and context blocks and stuff like that yes. and the should syntax. They go a little too far in some areas, and I think they pretty much know it because the recent version of our spec is kind of taking a step back and trying to fix yeah. some of that. So right. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll just plus one that. But, but I want to I want to jump in here and, and basically, you know, with the DSL, I like the example of SQL being a DSL because it's focused on solving a different problem. So you're not actually coding up the solution to the problem. You're giving the user, um, you know, maybe even a non-programmer user you know, some mechanism for communicating with your program in, in another way or in another, or expressing that in another way. Yeah. I, I, and, I think, and RSpec really doesn't do that because you still have the full effect of Ruby in place and it's designed for programmers to use it. Right. And, and it, I think the big difference is how you think about things, not, not what you're typing. And that a, a good DSL gives you sort of a, a, a whole new layer of abstraction Mm-hmm. To to think about things with and so you know SQL you you know oh great I have this concept of a join and that's an incredibly powerful abstraction for dealing with tables of data right yeah and but not not Turing complete I mean you don't use Postgres or what <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote an adventure game in in PLSQL to prove that it was Turing complete. I, I actually believe it is. It probably is Turing complete these days. I may be wrong. I don't know. Okay. Well, this is this is yeah. just a canonical example. Okay. So yeah. are are we are we done? Is it pick- actually one more thought, Josh? You mentioned that uh, it's a linguistic concept, and that made me kind of realize that yeah. So objects, you're all about sending messages to them. Mm-hmm. The API, you can think of the collection of messages as the API, like the collection of messages are, are the things that I can send to this object are the API. But what is a collection of messages spread out over time? It's a, a conversation. It's, no, it's a conversation. Oh, yeah. It's, it's you know, and so when I look at the API I, of, of an object, I I really am thinking, what are the kind of con- cons, what are the kinds of conversations I can have with this class or this object? And that's, yeah, with net HTTP, it's like, I have no idea how to start a conversation I can complete here. That's um, that's one of my favorite parts. Going back to Goose again, I hate to beat that horse, but they talked about how that the main section, you know, where you first uh, create the objects and hook them up, 
they called that the matchmaking section, right? So you like you introduce this object to this object, and then they can talk to each other. You know, that's right. pretty cool. All right. Well, I think we're pretty much at our time limit, so we'll go ahead and get into the picks. Avdi, do you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, I'm going to do a little shameless self-promotion here and say that uh, after after many delays and going much longer than I intend uh, expected to, my uh, my subscription screencast offering uh, Ruby Tapas is now available. You can find it at rubytapas.com. And the basic idea is that it's uh, it's very short screencasts, multiple times a week focused on the Ruby language and standard libraries and uh, basically intermediate to advanced topics in that area. Um, you know, language and, and library stuff that you might not know about. Also, idioms, stuff that, you know, ways of, of using them that work well and um, idioms and patterns and uh, some OO design tips and stuff like that. And uh, like I said, you can go to rubytapas.com and, and check it out. I've got one sample video up. Uh, there will be more. And uh, apart from that, let's see. Um, I really thought I'd pick this before, but I don't see it in the list. Uh, I have been, since I've started selling books, and now that I'm selling subscriptions, I've been using the the DPD service for uh, for doing that that sales. They've been handling my storefront, and uh, it's it's a great service, and they've been fantastic to work with. Every time I've needed a new feature, they've worked with me to get it rolled out. Um, so I, I heartily recommend them if you, if you want to sell some kind of digital product. And finally, uh, everyone knows I like to do drink picks and, uh, it is the time of year to pick apple cider. No, I'm not talking about hard cider. I'm just talking about the stuff that comes out of apples when you squish them. It's, Mm. it's, uh, it's autumn or it's getting towards the autumn season here on the East coast of the U S and, uh, it's my favorite time of the year and, and it's, um, it's apple cider season, and uh, man, if you can get your hands on some apple cider, that is one of the best, one of the best uh, liquids I know of to drink. <laughs> man, man I, 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 this is the actually th- the thing that I miss most about living in Pennsylvania is apple mm-hmm. cider. God, yeah, and it, you know, if you find a good <laughs> a good farm that you know that makes it well and doesn't mess with it too much, uh, you got it made. Yeah, heat it up, drink cold, spice it. Good stuff. Make apple butter. Mm. Mm-hmm. My wife just made pear butter last week. Very good. Uh, Josh, what are your picks? Okay. Um, well, I'll second uh, apple cider. Uh, okay. Uh, what else do I get here? Oh, I'm, I'm, I don't think I've done this before. I'm um, I'm picking an answer on Quora. So uh, this this popped up uh, recently. The, somebody uh, wrote this uh, amazing analogy of describing database scaling problems. Uh, in using the analogy of a library full of books. And uh, so the, the question is, why is it hard to scale a database in layman's terms? And uh, Yishan Wang, I think that's how you would say his name, gave a really great answer. It's gotten a lot of upvotes. So if you if you don't go on Quora, um, this is maybe a good time to check it out. The other thing is, uh, my next pick is uh, Automatic, the company that runs WordPress and now owns Gravatar and stuff like that. Uh, they have um, a privacy policy that is a, is great to copy. So th- they they put together a privacy policy and they released it under a Creative Commons license. And the nice thing about it is that it's in such clear terms that it doesn't require much in the in the way of explanation of what the privacy policy actually means. You can just read the privacy policy and it makes sense. So they 
put all this effort into it. They decided, oh, we don't want everyone else to have to do a lot of work to figure out how to say this stuff in a way that makes sense. So here, share it. And I've, I've noticed it popping up a few places and uh, we liked it. So we're using it on our stuff too. You know, kudos to them for being good citizens and, and sharing that. Oh yeah. So I haven't done a, an entertainment pick in a little while, I think. Uh, so the, there was this uh, cool episode or cool uh, series that I started watching on Netflix streaming a while back, uh, which is a retelling of the Sherlock Holmes stories just called Sherlock. And it's a modern production uh, from the BBC. And it, on Netflix, it's weird because it only looks like it's three episodes, but each episode is like an hour and a half long or something like that. So they've, they've taken some small, shorter episodes and combined them into, into uh, short stories. And it's cute because it's all modern and it's not, it, you know, it's not all the same as the old stories and they've updated it for modern politics and, and things like that, you know, things like text messages. But it's a, it's pretty cute and it's been getting a, some good fan reaction. Anyway, season two's up. So I started watching that and I'm enjoying it a lot. I think the actors from Sherlock are some of the main actors in uh, the Hobbit movies that they're making. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's true. I think there's uh, definitely overlap there. Yeah, Watson, Watson is Bilbo. Watson as is a, what? Is Bilbo? Yeah. As a massive, uh, as a massive Sherlock Holmes geek, uh, I endorse this pick. I, I, I've watched a few of them, and I feel like they do preserve a lot of the spirit of the of the character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, and they yeah. don't make Watson a buffoon, which is nice because Watson was not a buffoon. Right. Yeah. Awesome. All right, um, James, what are your picks? Uh, I've got a couple, let's see, uh, continuing on the service-oriented architecture kick I've kind of been on lately, uh, there's a good talk from uh, Mountain West RubyConf uh, this year about uh, service-oriented architecture, and, and he calls it real talk, uh, which is a meme you may or may not be familiar with, but uh, that's actually the great part of the talk, is uh it's a pro-service-oriented architecture talk where he spends the first half of his talk telling you why you shouldn't do it. <laughs> and it's really <laughs> good because um, he goes through and says, you know, oh, yeah, you're going to add latency. It's higher cost. You're going to need more RAM, blah, 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 blah. And he talks about a lot of things uh, like that. And, and again, he is pro, and he, he goes and talks um, through the positive sides of it after this, but I feel like he's very, you know, realistic about it, you know, know what you're getting yourself into. Um, and he takes kind of a, um, a he disagrees, I, I would say, with some, with the uh, book that we're currently reading, the uh, service-oriented design with Ruby and Rails. And um, so you'll get to hear some contrasting viewpoints in there uh, on a couple of points, and maybe we'll get to discuss those uh, when we do that episode. But uh, it's a neat talk. It's not very long. Uh, it's by BJ Clark, and it's pretty good stuff. So uh, you should check that out. And then uh, this one, because I'm going to miss it this year, and that makes me really sad. Uh, I need to make sure everybody else knows about it. Uh, the Rails Rumble is coming up, uh, which is where you take a weekend to uh, build a Rails application from scratch, uh, you and a team or whatever. Um, this is a really great event uh, that they host um, every year, I think, and uh, there's prizes, and I've participated several years. Um, a lot of apps that uh, people know uh, were originally Rails Rumble projects, uh, so it's a great chance to, like, springboard something you've been uh, 
uh, playing with or, or want to get off the ground. Uh, Scout app, uh, if you know that one, it was started this way. I did it uh, with Ryan Bates one year. We built Go versus Go. Um, so uh, it's really, really Fr- great. Friday stuff. Hug. Friday Hug was a Rails Rumble project. That's right, Friday Hug, yeah. So, yeah, there's lots of uh, great things that come out of it, and, and people throw them in there, and, and then some of them actually uh, go big. So uh, it's a cool thing to do if you've got the time. This year it's going to be, uh, begins on Saturday, October 13th. Uh, and you get 48 hours uh, to build a Rails application from scratch. So if you're not going to be in Hawaii that weekend like I am, then you should seriously consider uh, giving it a shot. Get a good team uh, together, and uh, it's a great chance to hone your skills and and uh, see what you can accomplish in that period of time. So it's a lot of fun. That's it. Awesome. Dave, what are your picks? All right. So uh, real quick, um, I want to pick the MG editor. So... Uh, it's, uh, like Mary Graham or Mary Golf, uh, is just the command brew install mg. This is, uh, a very tiny Emacs-like editor. And, uh, the advantage of it is it's got all of these, all of the features and stuff of Emacs turned off, which means that all the startup time is also turned off. So, uh, if you're like me, where you're doing a lot of work in Emacs and then you go to, you know, like, push code somewhere and you're not using, you know, uh, maggot mode to use Git from inside Emacs like me, um, it'll open up VI to do your editing. And I can get around in VI just fine, but I'd prefer to do it in Emacs. And so MG uh, gives me that ability. So um, just a cool little free little uh, Emacs-like editor. Um, my second pick is I'm actually going to pick a book I haven't read yet, but uh, I've downloaded it to my Kindle, and if the iOS 6 version of Kindle wasn't crashing continuously, I would have actually started reading it today. Um, but it's uh, Practical Object-Oriented Design in Ruby and Agile Primer uh, by Woo! Sandy Metz. Um, I met Sandy Metz at uh, RailsConf this year. Um, she is absolutely brilliant. She's got some good insight into this stuff. And three or four people have recommended this book to me um, very, very highly, including Brandon Hayes, who tweeted that if it's not our next book pick, he will personally set me on fire. Um, so <laughs> I've got to fight that tooth and nail now. Which out is of, a shame because I was going to make it our next book club pick, but now I don't know that I yeah, can. Yeah, exactly. So uh, out of self-preservation, I would like to suggest that this be <laughs> our next book pick. Um, out of the other four rogues' uh, sense of morbid curiosity, we will probably our next book pick will probably be mastering Visual Basic Four. Just Ooh, I uh, of that. Good idea. Just just so <laughs> that uh, I can do the what is it? Robert Frost. I lit myself on fire, and people came just to watch me burn. So <laughs> hey, let me add to that Sandy Metz pick real quick. While I was on vacation, I hooked up with a, a junior Rubyist friend of mine. And he's just getting into Ruby and learning a bunch of it. And um, he was just gushing over that book. He said he had, he had he was only about 75 pages into it, but he was working through it real slow and really trying to get all the code and stuff. And he, he's an old uh, C++ programmer. And he said he couldn't believe how many aha moments he was having just reading through this book. So uh, I've heard nothing but great things. Awesome. Hasn't, yeah, sure. hasn't it been picked or almost picked so many times? Nope. On the yeah, yeah, it's like it's like every week for the last month. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think we're running. Uh, has anyone not picked it yet? Chuck, have you picked it's, it? I, I haven't picked it yet. I, I, I next picked it next week is your turn. Okay, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll have to but go what, up, buy it. it. 
If you want, you can pick the video of her talk from Gogoruko. Oh, yeah. Which it's is amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's not the same. <laughs> All right, I guess it's my turn then. Um, I had an adventure this weekend with my um, my Mac Pro. It would just randomly freeze, and like all of the programs would freeze up, like every single one. And so I could move the mouse around, I could move the windows around, I could click on things, but nothing would happen. And it was really frustrating, so I wound up taking it into there. There's a little um, Mac. It's not the Mac store, but it's it's a chain of stores here in Utah that that takes care of this stuff. And it turns out that um, the if you plug a UPS into your um, that's a universal power supply battery backup. If you plug that into your um, Mac Pro and you hook up the USB, then it tells you that you know the battery backup is plugged in, but it also enables all of the power saving options in your computer. And one of those options that's turned on by default is the um, the hard drive, uh, putting the hard drives to sleep. Well, it turns out that the firmware in my solid state drive will allow it to go to sleep, but doesn't respond when it tells it to wake back up. Oh no. And so it would freeze every time it went to sleep is, is what finally figured out what the correlation was. So um, my first pick is um, updating the firmware on your hard drive <laughs> and, and being aware of whether or not your, um, your hard drive supports that option because it was, it was just a royal pain. Um, I also wound up reinstalling the operating system trying to make it work because I didn't realize that that's what was going on. So uh, my other pick is Time Machine because it, it it made it real easy to just bring everything right back to where it was. So um, I those are my picks. And um, my, my last pick is something that I think we've mentioned a few times on the show, and that is um, my new VA. And uh, she's just been awesome. Like all of the stuff that I've been waiting to get done for the last several months, I just handed off to her and she... She did it in, in a much more reasonable amount of time than I was getting it done before. And uh, it's just it's been so, so super nice to be able to just say, hey, I need this done and have and not worry about it and then just get a response back saying, okay, it's done, and go look at it and, and just know that, okay, yep, got done right. Just do it again that, that way next time. I, I, I can't even tell you how much stress it takes off to, to be able to do that. So um, if you want to find her, she's on Ruby. At, at Ruby Rep, and um, I don't know if she has a website. Does she have a website? Yeah, it's, it's it's Ruby uh, RubyRep dot com. Well, it's oh. it's Twitter is is the Ruby Rep, I believe. Uh, yeah, the Ruby Rep on Twitter and RubyRep dot com. So um, she can. Uh, so you're you're welcome to hire her, but if she gets too busy, I will come find you and kill you. As will I. <laughs> so anyway, um, I just wanted to give a quick. Plus, talk. Ruby Rogues may stop releasing regularly again, which would be the really tragic consequence, right? But yeah. but 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 totally hire her. Yeah, absolutely. Right. <laughs> anyway, um, so those are my picks. Um, I'll put links to those in the show notes, and uh, we'll we'll wrap this up. Um, just a few reminders: you can sign up for Ruby Parlay on RubyRogues.com. You can also um, get the noob or sign up for the noobs episode or episodes that we're going to put together and, and, you know, audition for the show and we'll, we'll have that uh, website up really soon and it should be pretty obvious where to go to get, get to that. And uh, other than that, we'll, we'll catch you all next week. Thanks David Brady for being our special guest this week. Hey, he's almost pretty enough to pull it off too. <laughs> <laughs>